This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. In one of her most recent pieces for Inside Climate News, the journalist Judy Fays makes a sort of startling claim. If you're looking for leadership on climate action, a science-informed plan for reducing greenhouse gases, the very red state of Utah might be a good place to set your gaze. And lest you think that Utah has somehow avoided the scourge of climate change denialism that has thwarted environmental action in other conservative and even not-so-conservative states, FaZe wasted no time in her article pointing out that plenty of Utah legislators still publicly question and even ridicule the science that points to human actions as the cause for global warming. So then what gives? Judy Faze has reported on the environment, politics, and business for the Salt Lake Tribune and NPR Utah, and she's a former night science journalism fellow at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. In 2019, she joined the staff at Inside Climate News, a Pulitzer Prize-winning nonprofit and nonpartisan news organization dedicated to covering climate change, energy, and the environment. Judy, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We produce this program in the Utah Public Radio studios, and a lot of our audience is here in Utah, but we've got plenty of listeners outside the state. So I was hoping we could start with just a bit of background on just how conservative Utah is politically and socially speaking, and and why this might seem to be an unlikely place for leadership and climate change action. It's actually been kind of a bumpy road if you want to talk about a climate roadmap, which is what the legislature is looking at right now. Basically, back in 2007, Governor John Huntsman Jr., he convened a panel of people who looked at climate change in Utah. And they, you know, they didn't mince words. They said, yep, it's changing. You know, Utah has a higher risk of drought and wildfire, water shortages, heat waves, that sort of thing. And that report came out, I think, in the fall of 2007. A couple years later, the legislature was inviting people like Roy Spencer, who is a climate denier, to address the climate issue among lawmakers. And it was kind of interesting because there was so much support for the words of Roy Spencer. And up until that point, they really hadn't heard from a climate scientist. Utah's approach was very conservative. There wasn't a lot of, you know, flag waving and, you know, panic and that kind of thing. But the scientists who were involved in that report, um, it was led by Jim Steenberg up at the University of Utah. And I think Rob Gillies at Utah State University was also part of it, the state climatologist. Again, they were really plain spoken. They said there's a problem. And it looked like Utah was on a course to start addressing the issue. Utah was also part of the Western Climate Initiative with a Republican-led state, California. Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor at the time, a Republican. And a bunch of Western states, some of which were led by Republicans, were going to get together and, and start a carbon market. But the only one who ended up being left in that market was California. And now California is engaged with parts of Canada to rein in carbon emissions and, and do a carbon tax. And Utah went a different direction, right? A very different direction from there. Yeah, I think for a long time, well, even till today, that that sort of dual thinking is still going on. The state has dedicated $53 million to help build a deep water port in California to ship coal to uh, foreign markets. 
And that's really kind of a, a low number in terms of the cost because there's still some challenges to getting that coal to the Port of Oakland to do the shipping. So that could be as much as a billion dollars. So, you know, again, on the one hand, we have the, the roadmap, and on the other hand, we have this deep water port. We have proposals in the legislature to clean up air pollution emissions and also to increase the number of electric vehicle charging stations around the state. But that's also facing some challenges. So again, sort of this dual path, eventually, I think people hope that there could be some climate action. Let's talk about like the denialism in this state, though, because that's still that's still a thing here, right? It's a thing in a lot of conservative states, but like as recently as 2010, legislators passed a resolution that essentially accused scientists around the world of engaging in a widespread conspiracy that suggested that there is, and an, this I'm going to quote, a well-organized and ongoing effort to manipulate global temperature data in order to produce a global warming outcome. Now, that was... 10 years ago, but there's still a lot of legislators in Utah that are holding to that line, right? Part of the problem with the climate conversation is that a lot of it is political conversation that's drawn a scientific question into the discussion. So the resistance and the skepticism is really more about a a political agenda that has nothing to do with what the science says. And yes, there are studies. In fact, one of those came up in Utah where one of the contributors to the IPCC report was with U.S. Magnesium, who said, yeah, that's not really that what's really happening. So even though he was on the IPCC or was part of it, contributed to the report, you know, he was saying this is not a big deal. This is, you know, this is made up stuff. So, yeah, but that's not about the science. It's about the politics of climate change, which has really become divided along party lines. You're you're saying it's about politics. Do you think the resistance is a little bit performative then? You know, I I actually don't know that I think it's something that's sort of made up or manufactured. I do think that people genuinely believe in their hearts that this is a game that people are playing, that they call it people who are raising the alarm, they're climate alarmists. So again, alarmist isn't a scientific word, is it? Right. So it's it's genuine concern, but it's concern that is not respective of what the science actually says. Do you think that the people who are using these sorts of words like alarmist are ignorant of the science or are simply refusing to look at the science or just want to draw attention to other needs? I think it's probably a little bit of everything. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure that I can tell you what someone's motivations are or or what they believe in their hearts. But I do think that it is a belief that some people have, and but that's a belief born more out of faith than out of looking at research. Because, again, even back in 2007, the language was very clear. The climate is changing. Utah's warming faster than the rest of the world, about twice as fast. And that's been shown over and over and over again. So... There's been this resistance to what these reports said, but then you write that there seems to have been a shift that began in 2018, and this is sort of inspiring. It started with some high school students. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it was fascinating. Back in 2018, some high school students 
the ones that I know are from northern Utah, the, the Ogden and Logan area. They came to the legislature with a, a climate change resolution, basically saying, you know, you, you should take this seriously. That resolution didn't leave the legislature and the people who put it together, the students, kind of rethought their approach a little bit. And it's funny, we were talking a little bit about politics and climate change. One of the things that they did was they took the term climate change out of the resolution, and instead they focused more on stewardship, environmental stewardship. And by doing that, they essentially took this provocative term out of the discussion and were able to have a discussion. And in fact, in 2018, they were able to actually get their resolution passed. It was sponsored by Becky Edwards. And lawmakers went ahead and approved it, actually overwhelmingly. The only fundamental change to this resolution was was the language. It still called for similar actions and similar attentiveness, but there was a decision made to remove some language, and that's what helped the legislature get over the hump, yeah? Yeah, that seems like what made the difference. I remember uh, listening to the committee debate, and there was another resolution that was introduced at the same time that did say the words climate change. I mean, basically the same point. But because the, the kids didn't use that term, um, lawmakers were like, this is amazing. This is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you for this. Compared to the other person who came up with, uh, with legislation that asked for climate change. These are savvy kids. Or did they just kind yeah. of back into it? What do you think? I think one of the things that's really important in this conversation is that no one wants to be made to feel like an idiot. And so by talking about something in terms that were palatable all around, the kids were smart and they were able to have a conversation instead of to provoke a fight. And for for good or ill, the term climate change, global warming, those words provoke a fight in our society, or they have been up until now. I think it might be changing a little, but it was considered provocative. So when they changed their resolution to the concurrent resolution on environmental and economic stewardship, that really took off with legislators. And then in 2019, the legislature approved $200,000 to support the writing of a report on both air pollution and climate change. And I guess against $53 million or maybe more to support extractive industries, that's nothing. But the report that was produced seems to have gotten some favorable looks from even conservative lawmakers. You write because of what it emphasizes and, and what it doesn't. And this is sort of following that same playbook as the high schoolers, right? In a way, it does. A couple of reasons. One is because I don't know of a poll in Utah in the last few years that didn't put air pollution at the top of the agenda for citizen concern. Everyone thinks that our air quality should be better. Um, and again, because we've got plenty of listeners who probably don't associate Utah with air pollution, that's what's the connection there? Right. Salt Lake City and northern Utah is kind of a series of bowls. And when it snows, those bowls are sealed in. I think of it as being sealed in with like saran wrap or something. And then when high pressure systems come in, that actually creates a seal on the top of the bowl. So you have the same amount of pollution, but there isn't any respiration of those polluted emissions. So the bowl can't clean itself out. 
all of that's trapped. And the longer the high pressure stays in place, the longer that bowl is sealed and the pollution just is bottled up. So we do have episodes that can be, you know, stretched for a couple of weeks at a time where the pollution is dangerous. And that actually has health implications for little kids who might have asthma, their asthma attacks increase for older people who might have heart disease or lung problems, and it affects them as well. And so whether or not you believe in climate change or not, whether or not you've kind of gone on the record earlier to say that climate change isn't real or that it's not human caused or that it's just alarmism, people left, right, and center are concerned about air quality. And so by melding these two things, because as it turns out, when we take actions to improve air quality, we also lower carbon emissions at the same time. The report writers were able to get some traction or seem to be getting some traction among lawmakers. That's correct. To reduce air pollution emissions and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, there are a couple of points that you can look at that overlap in both. If you reduce auto dependency, you improve both. If you improve energy efficiency of buildings, you improve both. If you advance energy solutions, if you find technological solutions to air pollution, you also reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's a really interesting chart in the Utah Roadmap that talks about that. One other point that's relevant here is that there are economic consequences to all of this as well. I think a lot of Utah lawmakers, while they may not want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, they are concerned that businesses aren't locating in northern Utah because of the pollution problems, which can be pretty severe and send people away. So uh, there are uh, many stories about businesses that were asked to please not come during our inversion season from mid-December to mid-February because of the fear of an inversion setting in. And by combining these two issues, the roadmap has gotten some traction, and it suggests reducing carbon dioxide emissions by 25% by 2025 and 80% by 2050. How does that stack up to other state goals? And I guess particularly in conservative, because we do expect that sort of leadership. I think we do expect that sort of leadership out of more liberal, environmentally-minded states, however you want to you put that, states where there's not a, as much climate denialism among lawmakers. But in terms of, like, conservative states, that's a pretty big goal, right? It is. There is a bit of a political divide about the conversation. But I think even places like Florida, which definitely has a, its own conservative element, they're looking at needing to reduce greenhouse gases because of the hurricanes, because of flooding. Their toilets back up sometimes when there are storms surge into the communities. So it is an issue that's becoming harder to escape. And finding a way to save face by framing this as an air pollution issue and an economic issue, I think that's something that is a winning recipe for getting everyone's attention. You wrote about this roadmap right before the Utah State Legislature convened for its 2020 regular session. What has the legislative response been, or what was the legislative response once legislators indeed headed to Capitol Hill? I think the um, the roadmap is actually 
I don't think it's been formally presented to the legislature at this point. And there was actually a snafu because Governor Gary Herbert in his budget this year proposed, I think it was about two-thirds for EVs and, and another third for other programs. And in fact, there was a $3 million for EV research at Utah State University. But one thing that happened that I don't know that anyone really anticipated was Utah's tax reform effort has been reversed, basically. The legislation that lawmakers passed last year um, was quickly repealed in the beginning of the session. So it's not really clear where that money might come from. And I think there's some concern or question whether lawmakers will have the appetite for that kind of investment in a year when they won't have the kind of funding that they were imagining. You have written that if this does get off the ground, if it does move forward, it may be an inflection point in the push toward renewable energy in conservative states. You mentioned earlier Florida, but you know Utah has this air pollution issue. Not everybody has an air pollution issue. Florida, you know, has, has hurricanes and floods. Is there going to need to be, if this sort of roadmap is scalable and exportable to other conservative states, is there going to need to be a local issue identified in each of those places that helps make the case while also sort of sidestepping around the climate change issue, do you think? I think that's kind of an interesting question, but the reality is, and again, this is also in the report somewhere, um, the reality is is that the energy markets are moving towards renewables. It's just more economical for power companies to generate more of their electricity from solar and from wind and from hydro and geothermal. All of the above option is becoming more and more embraced and, it, and again, becoming more economical. And I've always thought that that's really going to drive the conversation. And it's already happening. The other thing that's kind of fascinating, the plans for Rocky Mountain Power and other energy companies in the West are to shift over towards renewables and to shut down their coal plants. Rocky Mountain Power operates two coal plants, I think, in Utah, Hunter and Huntington down in Emory County. And those are slated to close in the next, I want to say, 15 years. And that was happening before the Utah roadmap. It's just that's the way the world is going, is towards renewables. And part of it is economic and part of it is climate. I think if there's a carbon tax, it'll become much more of a, a money issue for the companies as well. And there's another economic aspect to this. You wrote about this also recently. It involves one of the state's largest industries, winter tourism. You wrote recently that skiers and snowboarders are beginning to take leadership and, and envision themselves as potentially like the NRA, but of stopping climate change um, in terms of lobbying power. Because if climate change continues unabated, this sector of Utah's economy is in trouble. Yeah, I thought that that was a really fascinating story. And I was really impressed of the the focus is, is much more sophisticated. Everyone wants to sort of think about their outdoor sports as, you know, just going out there with abandon and having a good time. But really the skiers and snowmobilers, snowboarders, anyone who loves outdoor sports 
they see the future of their sport drifting away, or I guess melting away is the, is the right word. So we've got leadership coming from several sides on this issue. We've got a shifting economic model for energy that is also putting pressure on this. We've got leadership from young people who have figured out a way to talk about these issues and press forward these issues while sidestepping areas that would require people to, you know, admit they were wrong or change their political position. I, I got to say, like, this conversation, Judy, makes me feel a little bit optimistic. And that's a weird place to feel when you're talking about climate change because it's a big Gary changing world out there. How are you feeling right now? You know, I'm watchful and hopeful. I remember back when I was on my fellowship back in 2004, 2005, that was the year that uh, George W. Bush and John Kerry were facing off in the presidential election. I remember one of my fellow fellows who was from Argentina grabbing me by the collar after the election when uh, George W. Bush ran. And she said, why didn't you tell them? And um, I said, well, what? About what? She said, why didn't you tell them about climate change? Why didn't people realize this is important? And I said, well, you know, we are writing about climate change, but people aren't quite ready to listen. And I think that what's happened in the last few years, if you look at the fires in California, the flooding in the Midwest, the hurricanes, uh, the fires in Australia, it's really hard not to feel like you're a witness to extreme weather. And weren't they talking about that when they were talking about climate change? I mean, am I now seeing it with my own eyes? And so you can talk about all the scientific studies you want, but, you know, if you lose your family cabin um, in Utah County because of a big fire there I recently talked to some people in Iowa about the caucuses and the role climate change was playing. And they were saying, you know, it is a factor. People, Farmers who probably never would have talked about it even five years ago are sitting there thinking, well, man, my fields were flooded for most of last year and I, I couldn't get any. I could, my crops were washed out. So it's becoming real for more and more people. And I think it's harder to uh, just dismiss it as some kind of scientific jibberty gobble gobble. <laughs> jibberty Google? Something like that. <laughs> hey, you've you've been at Inside Climate News for a little less than half a year here. This is an organization that really dives deep on environmental issues. Um, and I should note here that we worked together at the Salt Lake Tribune starting about 17 years ago. And so I've been reading and listening to your work ever since then. You seem to have hit a stride with this this pretty narrow focus on climate. Does does it feel that way to you? Like you're you're doing work at a time that people's attention are kind of finally coming to this place where I, I know for a fact that you've been hoping people's attention would come to for a really long time. Yeah. Well it's funny because at the Salt Lake Tribune back when we were there working together, um we did a series, a seven-part series on climate change in Utah back in 2006. Um, and so for me, 
looking at, at the way things have happened in the last decade or so, the last 15 years, I feel like I'm in a really good place. A lot of the time during that last 15 years, I felt like um, I felt like I w- when I was covering other kinds of stories, you know, about developments or uh, cheatgrass or things like that, I felt like I was missing the story of our time. I mean, in a way, climate change is the only environmental story of our time. So I could have done nothing but write about climate change that whole time. And I think it would have been legitimate and important. But I just don't know that really the world was ready to to listen as well as they are now. And I'm really grateful to be with a bunch of really remarkable colleagues who are who are really solid and and uh, well informed and, and deeply sourced in these issues. That's Judy Fays. Her recent article, which asks whether conservative Utah has turned a corner on climate change, can be found at InsideClimateNews.org. Judy, thank you. Thank you, Matt. It was great to talk to you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.